David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Just a note to everyone before I get to talking to my guest today. Like a lot of us in media land, Light Culture Podcast is resetting its world in light of the coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter uprising. This talk was recorded before the start of the protests, so that's why there's no mention of it. Otherwise, we're good to go. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. My guest today is Kevin Leong, head of creative at 300 Entertainment, a company that has Megan Thee Stallion, Young Thug, and Gunna in its stable of acts across multiple genres that includes rock, pop, electronic, alternative, even country somehow. Founded by hip-hop legends, including Def Jam alumna Lior Cohn and Kevin Lyles, Kevin has worked in the past at Fat Farm, Baby Fat, Mark Echo. He's worked for Little Wayne. It's a long list that gives us lots to talk about with the self-described slanty Asian-eyed rebel. Yes, that's right. How you doing? What is, uh, where did that name come from and, and why do you proclaim it so much the way you do? Well, it's funny. I started writing graffiti as a kid and I basically came up with the name Sayer based off of letters. I used to uh, travel from Staten Island to Brooklyn with my family to see my grandparents in Brooklyn every weekend. And I would stare out the window on my dad's car from the back seat, And just, I was always mesmerized by the colors and the letters, the styles. I guess I was uh, really interested in fonts before I even knew that that was a thing. So uh, I just picked letters that I liked and I, I arrived at Sayer. And then the acronym kind of came after us. So, oh yeah, I'm the slanty Asian eyed rebel. Or like, you know, I'm, I'm, I set an example righteously or things like that. And then um, it changed to uh, Yellow Kid Slanny. So the YKS is Yellow Kid Slanny because uh, I got caught too many times doing Sayer. So I had to change the name, you know, like got arrested a couple of times for graffiti. And they, they, they see what you have written in your book or they catch you in the act and they take pictures of it. And then they go all over through this, all the boroughs trying to find it. And they charge you restitution based on how many times they find your name. Some people would write their name backwards after getting caught and I just switched it. <laughs> Switched it up. So being Asian is something that you felt obviously proud of and you wanted to proclaim that as part of your identity at an early age. Oh, yes, definitely. At a very early age. Yes. That's so funny because I'm an ABC, which is an American born Chinese, which means I don't speak Chinese uh, like fluently. Both of my parents were born in Brooklyn. So I was born in Brooklyn as well. So it's like a lot of generations of not speaking Chinese. But I was very into Chinese culture. I always liked 24 karat gold. And I always thought Asian women were the, were the prettiest. So, well, so, and the food is the best as well. Okay. Dim sum. I love dim sum too. As part of your work now, so that is not something that 
comes into play. You're more doing a bigger story here, right? Trying to tell big stories. One of the things I was curious about, because I know you've worked with Little Wayne, for example, and now you're working for a, a larger entity, a media company. What's the difference between trying to create a brand identity for someone like Little Wayne versus working with 300, let's say, where there's so many different aspects going on at once? Well, I mean, it's still um, working closely with the artist and, uh, you know, understanding their aesthetic, um, listening to the vision and adding to it and helping them brainstorm ideas. I guess with the Little Wayne scenario, he had something up and running already. So it was called Truck Fit, this clothing brand. So I was basically brought on to revamp the collection. So it's not like it was something from scratch. Working at 300, there's artists that already have things built, but then there's new artists that are just getting signed that uh, are heavily involved in creating something from scratch. So I guess that would be two of the major differences there. So what's the process like if somebody comes in to 300 or even the ones that, I don't know which ones have more of an identity when you first meet them or some less so, some need more help, some need less help, right? Do you have a process that you apply to each person? Uh, I don't know if I have a set process. I kind of just, it's all like, it's all about communication. So it's about meeting them listening to their uh, material and uh, seeing the imprint that they've established prior to joining and just uh, taking all those elements and, and, and drafting a, a strategy off of that. I wouldn't say I have like a set strategy, just really just meeting the artist and paying attention. But your, your work at 300 Entertainment, which, as I mentioned earlier, involves some of the founders of Def Jam. And also you go back with Def Jam at least with Russell Simmons going back to Fat Farm and Baby Fat, which was, you know, in its day, I think, very early on, right? I worked with Russell back in the, in the late 90s. It's funny because I was always in Leo's office as well because that was the time when Russell lived in L.A. So he didn't really have a, a spot in New York. So we would meet in the Def Jam offices in Leo's office is when I would have my meetings with Russell until he eventually opened up an office. So the Def Jam was 160 Varick on the 12th floor and Fat Farm became 180 Varick on the 10th floor. So it was kind of like right next to each other. So from the very beginning, the meetings were held at Def Jam. You sort of had to invent a style at that point, right? So what were your inspirations when you started uh, working on those looks? Well, when I started working on those looks, I was heavily uh, inspired by Ralph Lauren, Polo styles. Uh, I was a, a huge fan of Fat Farm already. Uh, when I met Russell in an elevator in Def Jam, I, I had Fat Farm on head to toe that I had purchased myself. Uh, you know, I grew up in a laundromat in Brooklyn on Flatbush and Avenue J, and a lot of clothing would be left over there. So uh, I was inspired by a lot of the the hand me downs that I would get, like the Carl Kanai and the cross colors, because people would, uh, you know, submit their clothes for laundry and for, for whatever reason not come back to get it, whether they got locked up or shot or something. So I ended up wearing all these clothing that was left there and being heavily inspired by it and just loving hip hop too. I loved hip hop at a very young age. And was that just an extension of what you were already doing the hip hop? Were you skating? Were you, you were doing graffiti? Oh, I was doing graffiti. My cousin wrote graffiti back in the day and I would go out with him and, um, you know, I loved hip hop music. And like I said, between the fashion, I've worked in streetwear fashion for a long time, but I've always considered hip hop is saving my life. You know, it's just kind of the fashion just kind of became the medium that I expressed my thoughts and my ideas. So what was your first gig in fashion? My first gig in fashion? Um, at the Gap. 
The Gap. It's so funny. Yeah, I used to I used to work retail at The Gap and I didn't fit with the dress code. You had to wear the clothing fitted and I think at one point they didn't want you to wear sneakers, you had to wear shoes. And I would come in with my shirt untucked, baggy pants with sneakers, and instead of sending me home, they would send me into the back uh, stock room <laughs> to fold the clothes, unpack the boxes, take out the trash, which I loved because taking out the trash gave me a an excursion through the back of the mall, you know, like disappear. And uh, that was fun. In doing that, I became an expert folder. And also growing up in a laundromat, I knew how to fold clothes like very well as well. By doing that, some of the managers came into the gap and saw saw me working that and doing the displays, like dressing the mannequins in the back. And they hired me to go to the corporate offices to help present the new collections to buyers. It's so funny because they actually had like woven shirts, like button down shirts, where they'd have one shirt that was real. And then the rest of them were paper with the patterns of the plaids and the stripes on it. And I had to like fold the paper to make it look like a shirt and put the real shirt on top. So it looks like a stack of shirts. So it was like, they called them chiclet folds. And also I, I had this like technique that I would steam the mannequins so quickly. Like a lot of people, they would steam the clothes first and then you have to put it on the mannequin and it get all wrinkled depending on, you know, how, if it was a pullover shirt or a full button down, whether it was a woven versus knit. So I would take the clothes all wrinkled, make the outfits, throw it on the mannequin all wrinkled. Then I would rip like, the cardboard corner of a box to make it kind of like a straight platform and stick it under the shirt and start steaming the clothes on the mannequin. So I was able to do them very quickly. People took note of that and they were like, that's why they wanted me to help with the presentation. So. And then when did you start like going into the designing yourself? Then fr from that, I went to the Fat Farm store and I showed uh, all the pictures of the stuff I did for the Gap in the, in the corporate offices. And uh, I tried to get a job in the store. It happened simultaneously because I used to DJ at FIT. So I went to Fashion Institute of Technology. So while I tried to get a job in the store showing the stuff I did from The Gap, I had a DJ show called Black Bean Sauce at FIT. And um, people used to steal the records from there. So I went to get the records at Def Jam in person and I met Russell in the elevator, dipped in head to toe Fat Farm. And that's how I kind of got my gig at Fat Farm from, from that situation. So, and what kind of music were you playing as a DJ there? Black Bean, was that hip-hop, really? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was, it, was the, it was the urban radio of FIT, yeah. All the, all the hip-hop. What is the difference between like being a designer and being a creative director, you know, when you have to do so many other things? That's a good question. So being a creative director, you're... Uh, you're the communicator working with many people, their stages and their strategies. I guess you would, a creative director would hire designers to help them build decks, illustrations, graphics for a bigger plan. So I guess as a designer, you would work on something and still contribute, obviously. But a creative director, I guess, is the one that is communicating all the ideas and executing them in, in a timeline, making sure that everything is happening in the right, in the right timeline. And along the way, I, I know, because we've hung out a little bit, that you have your own obsessions of, of as a collector, that you have, what, a thousand pairs of sneakers, let's yes. say, just to start? I do have a thousand pairs of sneakers, yes, I do. <laughs> when did you start to understand that that was something that was worth collecting? You use them as well, right? You don't just keep yeah, them Yeah, I in use boxes. them as well, but there's, there's hundreds that I have not worn. A lot of them don't age well. So it's like, if you wore them, 
you can still wear them now because you kind of, you know, put pressure on the air bubble and stretch it up. But if you never wore them and you put them on now, they'll just like crack. So it's actually good that I wore a lot of them because some of them, they're probably going to turn to dust. <laughs> I imagine you were starting doing this when people weren't really into it oh, as yeah. much so, as they are now. So when I was um, trend forecasting for Fat Farm and Baby Fat back then in like the late 90s, early millennium, I was getting paid to like travel all over Europe and Asia, sometimes on private jets. So, and I, I was able to buy clothing as references. I had budgets like 20 grand, 40 grand, you know, buy samples, outerwear, jackets, sweater knits, denim, anything, right? So all the money that I was making since I was buying all these references, because a lot of them, I put it on like a chopping block, cut it up, send, send a sleeve to China, you know, cut a pocket and staple to another jet, you know, just mix and match and things. But certain things, you know, we wouldn't utilize, so I get to keep it. So basically I wasn't spending any money on clothing. So I spent all my money on sneakers, every last penny. So everywhere I went in Europe, like I'd be in Amsterdam, I'd buy 10 pairs. I'd be in London. London would be last because the, the, the pound was so strong. I'd want to go there last. This was before the euro. So I'd be like, you know, spending lira, spending gildens. But why did you want to buy them? I, I think I was, uh, since uh, a kid, I was always like obsessed with like hooking up my outfits. You know, like I would go as far as like the plaid shirt I had. I'd find a hat that had the plaid underneath the bucket hat or the, the same plaid on the inside of a sneaker. Like even the, you wouldn't even see it, but I just want to. So whenever I saw like colorways, I loved like, I loved Air Force Ones and Air Maxes. Like I like Jordans more so now than then, but I was really just Air Force Ones and uh, Air Max. So a lot, this was when you had brands that were releasing colors only in certain parts of Europe or Japan or Asia. You know, I just wanted to have this color that come back to the U.S. and be like, you don't have this color. You don't, you don't even know where this came from. You don't got these, but not only just have them having like a full-on outfit where the whole thing is hooked up, where it's like, I was really into that. Well, what else you got? Tell me some about some of the other things you collect, because I understand it's massive. I have like three, four storage units full of stuff, like magazines, comic books, uh, collectible toys, cashmere sweaters, old polo <laughs> sweaters, Japanese denim, uh, hats. Like I have <laughs> so many hats. I would, I would buy hats too. If I wasn't buying sneakers, I'd go into a store where the cheapest thing was like $1,000 and then buy the hat. What kind of hats are these? Uh, Br Brunello Cuccinelli hats, Laura Piana hats, Xenia Sport hats, like just expensive hats. Uh, Coppola Storta, like all these brands, Sherlock Holmes hats, bucket hats. <laughs> I, 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 but it wasn't even just expensive hats too. Like I love hats. Like, like I, I've been going to the Hamptons for a long time. And I would always go to all the tennis clubs just to buy the visors and the bucket hats. I'd go into the tennis shops everywhere all through the Hamptons and buy up all the white bucket hats, all the white visors. I had this one visor. It was my favorite. They don't even make it anymore. It's called the sun visor, where it's an actual terry cloth headband with Velcro. <laughs> and then the visor just Velcros on and off. You could like rip the, the whole, oh, I loved it. I put like a hundred of them. <laughs> you got to break it out, man. Take it out for the Corona. And there was this one company in the tennis shops. It was just a, a gold embroidered pineapple. <laughs> got to have it. called it. Uh, Bumi Soroka, Bumi Satoka, some brand. I don't know. It was just like, that was like my style between having the sneakers and the hats, the accessories, like the 24 karat gold. And that, that was my, my thing when I was younger. So do you feel like that hip hop has been the biggest influence on fashion in 
you know, the last two decades, let's say, is there anything that comes close? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, youth culture always dictates that. In hip-hop, it was one of the biggest movements in, in that time frame for the youth. So, But not only that, but the artists themselves were so much into it that they became the style kings and they were willing to wear the clothes that, you know, nobody else would. They're flamboyant. They're celebrities. That's kind of part of their game. It's true. I just think it's it's real. It's like the street style that translated, you know, like hip hop wasn't always like that. Like, you know, like when hip hop first came out, they were dressing like rock stars with the shiny suits and shit like, you know, but then like around that run DMC era, they, they started dressing like the street kids, like with the Adidas, you know what I mean? And, 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 and the, the, the gold chains, the dookie links, all of that, you know what I mean? So the leather blazers, like it took a turn into the streets and that's when it, when it became more like, oh, that's, that's me. That's they're wearing what I wear. That's my shit. And you've been in the game, not just working for others. You've also launched your own line along the way. Oh, yeah. I've worked on many projects. Um, uh, for a long time, every time I'd go to China working for somebody, I, would, I wouldn't feel complete unless I worked on something myself at the same time. I don't know if you know, like when you go on those China trips, it's like 24-7 you're working. Like, it's not even just Saturday. It's like it's nonstop because you're still on the U.S. time but then you're trying to get the most out of the day in China. The last thing you'd want to do is try to work on more stuff, but that's just the way that I was. I would always have to try and create some something myself or go to the market and do some research and get some materials and some fabrics and just always out and about, you know, try, try to reach out to other contacts for manufacturers to meet them while you're there. Of the current artists today that the 300 has, who do you feel you work most closely on, in terms of their image and branding? Most closely? I don't know if there's one. There's so many, we get, we get so many projects for all artists every day. It's like, uh, I think the challenge is like managing that process and making sure that you, you, you identify what the 911s are and focusing on them and making sure that you get them out at the right time, but not sacrificing quality. Well, we just have like, you know, Megan the Stallion, for example. Is that somebody that you worked with at all? Or is that she m more like self-contained? We work with her, but she, she has like uh, her own management and um, she has a stylist. But we do, we, we work on her, her artwork internally for her albums. You know, we just did her merch, uh, rebuilding the website with, uh, you know, with her management company and herself. So yeah, we're working closely with her. And does that is you like that aspect of the of the gig more than others, or which which parts do you feel most connected with? I don't know if I say if I like that part or not. It's a it's a necessity. It's almost like as a designer, do you like the execution process? Like, what good is a design idea if it's not executed properly? So if that's the procedure that it needs to happen to get things executed properly, then then I'm all for it because I mean we all want we all want to have the best results at the end of the day. So let's look at Gunna for example, which just was released recently, and its anticipation was really high for that album. What was some of the work that you helped on with that? What were the issues that you were trying to deal with? Well, basically, the album just came out just at midnight yesterday to this morning, basically. So there was a lot of 911 still still dealing with some right now. So um you know we we got some vinyl made, some picture discs last minute. You know, a lot of different people have their websites. Gunna has uh, his own creative team as well who handle most the majority of the merch. But we built a website, you know, his album's called Wanna and he's a Gemini. 
So it's pretty dope. The concept's based off of horoscopes. So we had built this custom uh, page on the website where fans can uh, type in their birthday and the year they were born, and it kind of gives you like an astrological chart and gives you a reading. So that all had to be built in like within a week's time. And then, uh, you know, apart from the merch, like I said, he has his own creative team. We, we were helping him with his vinyl and his, and his music merch that was made by a different company. So there's the communication between all of that to make sure that everything is getting up on the site on time and that the streams are getting reported properly. So, you know, digital streams are attached in, in the, to the merch products and bundles. Like there's a lot of things that go on. And, and when you deal with artists that have their own teams and there's always the problems of, of, of leaking, you know, in the industry, like music leaking and stuff. So a lot of times there's a lot of demands for things to get done, but then you, you don't receive the assets or the wave files till like the very last minute to try and keep that tight protection. So it's like kind of working not only under a tight time frame, but you're not, you're not getting all the, the pieces to your puzzle until the very last minute. And then they want to see the full picture. Sounds intense. I basically work with, uh, with people in, uh, in Asia on the West coast. So I'm, I'm working all day. And then at nighttime, I'm working with the people in LA cause they're three hours back. So I was getting calls at like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock yesterday. Like, you know, uh, just to let you know that the, the other merch company didn't put the, the embed code on there to, to link the, the vinyl. So, uh, you know, we got to get that up and running, you know, things like that. Your job is much broader. Oh, yeah. Or even it's like, like I said, communication is so important. So you have the other creative team sending assets over to the their merch company that's not making the music, that's making the merch. It'll be a situation like this, 12 uh, shirts that each has a horoscope, but then they only received 11 or something, or they're missing like an item. It's like being on an email with 20 people and just finding the couple of things that you're responsible for, but also keeping track of all the other things that are being passed off. It, it can be a lot sometimes. I bet. What about the, the coronavirus? How has that impacted all of that? I mean, trying to launch a major record under these conditions. Can I tell you? So basically, I think it just... Uh, allowed for people to t try and find a new, uh, a new way of doing things that they were used to. Like if you're not touring right now, or you're not doing meet and greets with fans how, and you can't engage with fans like that, what platforms can you create to do that now, you know, through social media, creating your own, you know, getting the artist to participate more on social media and platforms there and setting things up that way, creating new initiatives, like 300 created this initiative called 300 creates we pair up artists and we create these design challenges and contests for fans, you know, to submit art and we give them prizes like $5,000 or we might like reproduce their art on merch. There's this thing called 300 unplugged. That's part of our YouTube channel. And we have live performances from some of our artists, like our acoustic artists and stuff like that. An opportunity for people to uh, perform on a platform. There's this thing called, Club Stay the Fuck Home, which is like getting all the DJs that we used to service to get DJed in the venues now because they're all furloughed and we're creating this space online on Insta Live and on Twitch where people can, uh, you know, come join in on um, on Friday at 8.15. Actually, today at 8.15, they're going to do it. We're doing one on the 24th this Sunday, 24 hours of music. It's the 24-hour edition and we have DJs from all over the world that when you tune into our 300 uh, Insta, your music will be playing 24 hours. And what is the goal of this? Just to keep the artists in front of the people? Yeah, to like I said, creating these new platforms. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like like Kev did this thing with Ari Melber from MSNBC yesterday. It's called the Light Up, and they kind of like they were doing like these challenges for charity, 
where Kev would ask like spit lyrics and Ari of artists and Ari, Ari would have to try and guess who the artist was. Or I think he made, he made Ari bark like DMX and then he donated five grand to a charity. One of the things that is happening, people are dying, many from COVID, but also from other things. So it just seems like there's a lot of sadness in the air, not only because we're losing a lifestyle, but we're actually losing lives. One of these particularly, I know, was very close to you, that it was also very big in the music industry and also part of the original kind of Def Jam posse, Andre Harrell. He just passed out. That, that I was very sad, actually, all last week. Uh, it was very recent. It just happened. Yeah, I loved Andre Harrell. He was he was he was a good friend. He was like a mentor to me. But we connected on a friendship level more so than just like on a work situation. Even though we had worked together in the past, you know, we we traveled a lot. I hung out with him every time we could see each other. There, there was a moment in time when we were working on a project called Champagne and Bubbles, and we were like together like every day day, night. Like I stayed at his apartment for like a month when he had that spot on Morton Square. When I had my place on 61st Street, like Dre would crash at my spot every now and then. Like I think when I first started dating my wife now, like I think she told me like one one of the times she first came to my place, he was like on my couch chilling, real homie style. And just for our audience, like just to, he was a music executive. He had all, also had one of the early uh, hip hop bands, right? He had Uptown Records. Uptown he Records. Also, where also he also was a VP at Def Jam. He was the CEO of Motown Records. I mean, he created, he he, uh, he helped the careers of Jodeci, Mary J. Blige, Heavy D. Uh, I mean, Puffy was his intern. Like, he was the original guy who signed Biggie. Like, uh, just so many things. Robin Thicke. Uh, he put Halle Berry in her first movie. I won't hold Robin Thicke against him. <laughs> <laughs> put that on the side for a minute you know uh yeah he was a great guy everybody loved him he was always the life of the party i'm happy i got to spend time with him in bali in december that was the last time i saw him i actually went out to visit russell for a month and uh dre was out there we all hung out it was great and weren't you also like a fashion inspiration for him or work with him on his look and he was very dapper and oh yeah no, he was and... he was an inspiration to me um i helped him make these these silk handkerchiefs with polka dots on it. It was called Champagne and Bubbles. Uh, my friend Bradley Theodore created the logo. It was a penguin with a bow tie with polka dots. He created the script. Uh, Victor Matthews painted a portrait of him. Like he made a CD that was the, the still one of the illest mixtapes to this day. It's called Champagne and Bubbles. You guys should listen to it. It was DJ Cassidy and O'Neill McKnight. And I remember like one Christmas time, this is when he had a range. And he, he did a sneaker collab with Lotto. So we printed up these CDs and he came over to my house and we we're like putting the CDs in the sleeves, opening the sneaker boxes, putting a scarf in there, putting the CD. And then he would drive to every record label to all his friends and he'd have me deliver these to them. I'd go to see Jay-Z and like everybody just dropping these sneakers, these care packages off to everybody. And I, and I swear to you, I know Jay-Z was definitely influenced by Champagne and Bubbles because he had that collection Rockaware at the time. And he did a high-end collection of um, items for Rockaware. And they were the same items that we did for Champagne and Bubbles. But instead of polka dots, it was skull and crossbones on the silk. But it was like the, we did like this cashmere full zip hoodie. And inside the lining of the hoodie was like this silk. You know, we had these jeans that had the holes ripped in it, weathered denim. But 
behind the rips of the jeans were all these like colorful uh, silk scarves in different colors. Like he was really into that. That was his aesthetic. And also thin whale corduroys in bright colors like Crayola. He loved that. You know, silk shirts, silk handkerchiefs, just the champagne and bubbles lifestyle. That was him. Grown and sexy. Yeah, it was a different look. Also, I mean, it was a much more sophisticated look of an of a executive. He certainly wasn't street yeah. at this point. I mean, he, you know, he was the, from the original group, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, yeah. and they were like, you know, they were always in suits and dapper from back then. So he was just that's the evolution of his style. He created grown and sexy, and and ghetto fabulous. That's he created those two, those two phrases. Yeah, ghetto fabulous is is pretty pretty strong still today. Yeah. I know you mentioned Russell and his name comes up still. And today, you know, there is like a lot of chatter to say the least about some of uh, what he has been through and, and put other people through, if you believe the stories. I know there was a lot of talk about um, these people that came out and this, this documentary was coming out and Oprah was behind it and everything. But she ultimately backed away from it because she realized that the, uh, the evidence that was shown to her wasn't complete. So she backed away from it. Um, yeah, I've been with Russell. For, I worked with him for 15 years. I met him in the 90s. I've, I've never once uh, seen anything like that go down in front of me. And I've, I've been everywhere with him, all over the world. I've never seen anything like that happen. So that's, that's, that's all I can really say about that. In 2016, you name-checked brands like Fear of God, Antisocial, Social Club, off-white. What did you see in them before everyone else did that made you interested? That was so funny. So um, the Antisocial Social Club guy, actually met him before he did that brand. He was doing a different brand. It was called Bin Asian. And, uh, and he, he gave me a shirt. I just liked it, supporting like fellow Asian homies in the streetwear. That was just like, I was a fan of that, you know. Off-White, I actually worked with Virgil. I used to work with Big Sean uh, <laughs> with Kevin Lyles at KWL. So I was the creative director at KWL Enterprises. And they had Big Sean, Trey Songs, Estelle, uh, Salida Ebanks, Sonia Ross, a couple other people. But uh, Big Sean was the focus, Trey Songs. And through Big Sean, uh, we worked on a line called Aura Gold. So we had a line called Finally Famous, but it was named off of one of his mixtapes. And, you know, once the mixtape goes over, you, you never want to name an artist's brand off of a mixtape. He's going to have new material. And then what does that mean to the brand? So we converted the name to Aura Gold. I did a whole rebranding. And, you know, Big Sean got signed by Kanye. So Kanye had uh, Virgil working on it. So I had to get a lot of approvals and, and just creative discussions with Virgil on that project. So I had met him in the past through that. And, uh, you know, now he's, he's huge right now. So this was before him. Another division or element of the 300 Entertainment is the Young Stoner Life Records. Focusing on the word stoner there for a minute, that's part of, of the life as well, isn't it, of uh, 300 Entertainment? Yes, YSL, Young Stoner Life. What does that mean, stoner life to you? Young Stoner Life, it's like, you know, I guess it's like another way of saying that to them. I mean, I guess they're, they're rock stars, you know. Young Stoner Life is like, that's that rock star shit, I guess. Um you know, you got Young Thug, you got Gunna, you got Little Keed. And what about like cannabis? Is that a part of it as well? Definitely. Uh, for the merch they made for Young Stone Life, there were like grinders and ashtrays, rolling papers, lighters. All, all, of, all, all of those are, are everyday accessories to us. Cannabis is so much a part of, of that world. 
But at the same time, it's still stigmatized in the mainstream world, even though it's like such a big, obvious thing and it's still underground. Do you feel that there's a crossover that's going to happen that will start impacting design and, and the way people look at the world outside cannabis? I think it already has. I feel like that statement you just made is kind of a, a fading statement already. I feel like we're already there. Isn't it like New York City? It's already been decriminalized, but now it's going to. But I feel like it hasn't hit like the mainstream uh, fashion world, you know, with regard to the images that are put out mm. there. We don't see like models for Prada, you know, smoking a joint or doing, right. doing things that are much that they probably well, you know, do on the side, right? Well, well, you know why? I think it's because like when, what, in the 50s or 60s, their ads were like with cigarettes everywhere. So smoking is still bad. There's many ways to take THC or CBD. It's not about smoking. You know, it's like, what are you going to show somebody taking a tincture or something? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. But I feel like to answer your question on that, you know, marijuana, weed, that's medicine. You know, music is medicine. You know, they both help to heal you in different ways. So um, I don't think, I don't live in that world where people uh, look down on it. And if they do, I, you're, you're free to have your own opinion. I don't share that opinion. You know, it helps me out tremendously. It's medicine to me ever since I was a kid. And um, it's so funny because I met you in Vancouver. <laughs> yes. Taking a trip with Kevin Lyles to go visit a cannabis company. Right. So that's, that's, that's how we actually linked. Yes, it is. And, uh, and um, I think it's a great thing that, you know, this cannabis company, Burb, sees that the importance of doing a show like this. So it's not just about cannabis, that, that they are part of the solution, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, by taking the subject, the conversation and bringing it into all of the areas of life, that it doesn't only have to be stigmatized and, and put into a box and we could only talk about it in, under certain circumstances. Definitely. I mean, shout out to the Burb guys. I mean, just this past 420, we did an event with 300 together for 420. It was with uh, hosted by Method Man and Red Man and Kevin Lyles. We had a whole bunch of rappers show up and we were all just smoking virtually and talking about the strains. Everyone has their own strain and what their favorite weed is and just, you know, stoner shit, like what your favorite snacks are. <laughs> totally. You know, where's the, you know, where's the craziest place you ever smoked a joint or a blunt, you know, something like that. I think it does more uh, good than bad, brings people together. You know, it's medicine, like I said. Yeah. And hip hop has been very instrumental in making it more public and, and bringing it out of the closet or from the underground. So much part of the culture and that culture has become pop culture. So it's no longer like an alternative culture. So here we are. Deal with it. I mean, I was ahead of the curve on that. When we were not quarantined and out in the clubs, I was smoking everywhere and anywhere, wherever I could. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't care. I lighted up in the club, lighted up wherever I'm in a restaurant, anywhere. And what on happened? Roof, rooftop <laughs> People didn't come and tell you like, "Hey, put that out," or you can't do sometimes, that. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes it depends on the situation, you know. But there's there's times that they have, and there's times where it was all good. Yeah. Well, you're surely a visionary in my mind. I mean, the, the time <laughs> that we have spent together, I was totally impressed by all the different aspects of of your worlds of design and music and fashion and just all around cool shit. So very happy we finally were able to get this conversation going after many, many attempts, I must say. 
but Definitely. I'm very happy to have had a chance to talk with you. Uh, thank you for being on my show. No, thank you for uh, having me. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.